0: seems kind of counterintuitive, but that somebody who wants to punch you in the face and render you unconscious wants to make you feel good about yourself.
1: That's Jacques De Broker, today's guest. Jacques is a psychotherapist for trauma victims and and has the stories uh, to show for it. This is Job Speakers, a podcast dedicated to exploring the universe of jobs. We all work at least 40 years. Why not make the most of it? Every week, We bring on guests representing different jobs, but all talking about how they've managed their careers, how they've made uh, some good choices and maybe stumbled through some bad ones. And then everyone shares advice uh, for all of you. Let's start the episode, but hang around to the end so that we can talk about who's up next week. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Jacques, uh, welcome to the show. It's good to see you.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. Can you tell our listeners what you do for a living?
0: Uh, I am a full-time, uh, psychotherapist, uh, I specialize in treating addictions, so I treat, uh, mainly alcohol and heroin addiction in adults.
1: How long have you been doing that?
0: Coming in on 17 years of doing that full-time. Uh, when I started, it was a, it was a beginning private practice, so I didn't have a lot of clients for a a couple of years, but, uh, yeah, 17 years almost now coming up in the fall.
1: Roughly, how many clients do you serve today?
0: I see between twenty-five and thirty-five a week. Uh, it's it's a fairly heavy load.
1: It sounds draining. Tell me more about what the experience is like and and how you manage.
0: Draining. Yeah, that's an interesting word. Yeah, it <laughs> it is it is uh, taxing um, because people that I work with, uh, my clients, um, they suffer. Typically, a lot of really heavy duty trauma. So, I don't, I, in my practice, I kind of look at it as I'm not really treating addiction, I'm treating trauma. Addiction is their coping mechanism. And so, you know, I, I have to go in every day and remind myself that whatever their problems are, they are their problems. They're not my problems. What you encounter day to day with these people is just, it's the stories can be gut wrenching in time. Um, so, it is, it is somewhat draining, yeah.
1: If, if memory serves, you started dabbling in this area when, when we lived not too far away from each other, but then you went back to school, right? Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of education and uh, certifications or whatever else you might call what you needed to do to be able to uh, run your practice the way you do now?
0: Well, you know, I'll tell you, the, uh, that was the big hindrance. Initially for me, even getting into this, I, when I was a kid, I was like, you know, 18, 19 years old. I thought it would be really cool to be a psychologist. Um, you know, I'd see Bob Newhart on TV and think, Oh, you know, he's just talks to people. That's awesome. But I knew it was going to require at least a master's degree, if not more. And I really didn't think I was smart enough to be able to get through that much school or even school at all at the time. So to, to do what I do, um, at a minimum, you need a master's degree uh, to get licensure as a professional therapist. You know, the any anything above that, if you get a doctorate in psychology or so, you know social work or something else, it, it's you can do that. But uh, for for licensure as a professional licensed therapist, it's it's a master's degree in counseling. Uh, you can do the social work track also. Um, I I have three. I have actually four licenses. I have 3 in the state of Virginia and 1 in the state of Texas. So it's uh, and and the so you go through the education portion of it and then you've got to do your postgraduate residency hours and in the state of Virginia it's 4000 hours of clinical experience you have to have registered with the state before you can even sit for the exam pass the exam and then get the licensure just for just for one of those licenses.
1: So so it's my turn to ask a question that maybe sounds therapist like You said when you were younger, you didn't think you were smart enough. But here you are sitting in front of me, and you have done it. What was the turning point? Was there a moment where you just made a decision, or how did you come to the realization to have the confidence to keep going?
0: You know, it's it's kind of interesting. I didn't really, I didn't. The idea of coming up with a degree and getting a master's degree was not my idea. Um, I had a friend who was a psychologist who wanted to who talked to me and said, you know, you seem to have a lot of interest in in uh, people's behaviors, and I know, you know, you do personal training on the side. Uh, you, you seem to know a lot about what, you know, motivates them to do things. You're, you should be on the other side of clinical the clinical world. At the time, I was working as a, a healthcare administrator, and I, I said, I can't. I, I can't get through school. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, you know, I, I got through my bachelor's degree. That was tough enough. And She said, no, you could do that. And uh, so she talked me into, um, you could take a class or two in a master's program without being accepted into the school, Uh, kind of an extended studies kind of situation. So I did that and uh, I was amazed at how easy it was. (laughs) I had kind of put it together as this horribly difficult process that, you know, I would never be able to perform at that level. And it really was, you know, if you're a mature adult and you, you want to do it, you know, it's, you know, you can do it. And so I did. And she helped me with my application process after that and gave me a letter of recommendation. And I ended up getting into the program.
1: Now that you're doing it, right. You put all that time and all that effort. Uh, You had an idea, although I don't know Bob Newhart comes close to what what you do now. Though if it were the case, I'd probably sign up. (laughs) Now that you're doing it, is there anything that's surprising or different than you would expect it to have been when you were working through the schooling and everything that led you to where you are now? Is it harder? Is it easier? Like, right? There's one thing to sort of have an idea. A lot of people have a vision for where they're going but they don't really know what that's like until they land there and start doing it. So that's sort of my question to you now that you are.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, th- there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about what, what a clinical therapist does. And the, the, the thing you see in, in television and movies, a lot of times is portrayed pretty accurately, but I think the writers of those screenplays and those scripts probably have been in therapy. So they kind of get it, um, analyze this, you know, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna be, you know, helping a monster and his problems most likely. But it can be a, a a lot more challenging than it than it seems. But I think the toughest part is that you are walking somebody through the the most difficult, horrifically tra- traumatizing events of their entire lives, and y- y- you know, doing that, I thought. I thought it would be easier than it was, but I think the worst part is being in the presence of a person who is feeling their emotions again about the event, whether it's, you know, being attacked or molested or, you know, shot at or whatever it is and being in their presence in a room and being highly attuned to them. It it makes you feel what they're feeling. And, um, that's, that's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought it would be kind of like, well, you know, you got a broken arm. Well, let me set your arm, you know, as a doctor would do. But, um, emotional damage is really much more complex than that, uh, in experience, experientially.
1: I don't know if the word is empathy, but it's the closest word that comes to mind as you describe sort of feeling what they're going through. Was that something you naturally were good at before, or did you have to learn it for, for this job?
0: I'm not sure that you can learn how to be empathetic. I, I think that you have an affinity for it, and there are people that have more empathy. There, you know, Neurologically, we have neurons in our brains that are, are, are identified as empathy neurons. They're, they're the neurons that become active when you're listening to somebody um, tell their story or go through experiences, and you feel something for them. And we know, um, through the use of like fmris that you can actually identify the part of the brain that becomes active when somebody is feeling empathetic that there are there are people that we we identify as super feelers they're the ones that have more brain activity in that center uh, in their brain than others I, I i don't know i mean i haven't had that procedure performed on me to see but i i i'm using a therapist word i'm sorry i feel like i have probably more of that. It seems like I do. Um, but it's, yeah, I, mean, I don't know that you can learn that. I think you just kind of have it or you don't.
1: How do you gauge your effectiveness?
0: Uh, well, for me in my specialty, it's very easy because they're either moving towards sobriety, being clean and sober, or they're not. Um, that's one way. The second way is, do they Surrender themselves to the process of sobriety when you're working with them, or they they continue to be resistant the whole time. If somebody's not successful with me, they're probably gonna end up in jail or dead. And so I gauge my you know my success in what I'm doing based on that. And I know it sounds kind of extreme, but that's the world I live in. Um, so if they have relapsed, you know, four or five times, maybe they've overdosed a couple times and died, and they've been brought back to life with Narcan. That, that could seem like a, a failure, but it's actually not. It's it's longer term. It's did did you did you end up with a felony and now you're serving five years? Well that's for me that would be a failure.
1: You said you'd see about twenty to twenty-five clients a week, correct? Is that what you said? At a minimum, yeah. At a minimum. When you rely on the toolbox that is part of your skill set to to deal with each of those individuals, give give us give me a sense for how much are those common tools, and how much are you tweaking them for the individual sitting in your in your office at that time
0: what What I've learned over the years is that you have to be really kind of light on your feet when you're dealing with clients, and I think this is part of it that they think you can't learn this in, in in an education program you can't learn this in, in get your uh, your educational training. you might learn it in in some kind of residency situation if you have a good supervisor, but you have to be really light on your feet because you do not know what that person's experience is until they walk in the door. So I adapt around them based on what they have experienced. Um, I might get a combat vet. I might get somebody who was uh, severely sexually molested as a three-year-old girl. I might get somebody who went through a horrific car accident um, I have to adapt around what I do with the person. And so, you know, as a, as a therapist, one of the things I think that's very important is specialization. I, I, I have this thing about therapists who will not specialize. They kind of generalize, you know, who do you, who, what kind of clients do you see? And it's like anything. Well, what, what approaches do you use? What theoretical orientation do you have? Oh, it's this and that. And it's a bunch of, I'm, I'm eclectic, you know? I think it's really important for people to to find a therapist or to as a therapist to be a therapist who specializes in something and has a theoretical orientation. I'm a big fan of uh, Stephen Porges and Alan Shore and um, Dan Siegel. Those are kind of my idols and and I've studied their work immensely. They were all over my dissertation. Um, That interpersonal neurobiology, that connectivity of person to person and attachment theory. So you have to go back to feeling for the person. You have to be attuned to them. So when you're, when you're with somebody and you don't know where they're at emotionally, you don't know what their experience is, um, you have to kind of adapt and be amorphic and chameleon-like around that until you figure that out.
1: How do you find clients or how do they find you? A lot of it's word of mouth.
0: You know the the recovery community is a pretty. It's like a subculture. It's a sub society within our society. We all know each other. Families. I deal with a lot of families because I do interventions as well, um, which is a whole other thing. But it's it's word of mouth. Uh, you go to a meeting. If you if you go to AA or NA meetings, you're going to run into. It doesn't matter what city you're in or town or how small. You're going to keep running into the same people, and um, kind of word spreads around like, hey, this this person might help you. And, and so it's that way. Families will talk to each other. Um, They see each other in Al-Anon and, um, you know, a name will get passed around of this therapist or that psychiatrist is good. Um, Some of, some people honestly just do a Google search because they have no idea how to find a therapist. So they'll go on psychology today or a Google search, and you know, your name will pop up and that's how you get it. But
1: um, I don't advertise.
0: Um, I I have a a directory listing and a web page. That's it.
1: Did you decide this was the focus and specialty you wanted to do while you were getting your master's degree? Or was this something that came came along later?
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny. When I was doing my master's degree, I was specifically told, do not work with addicts. They're unreliable. They're flight risks. They don't pay. They relapse all the time. It's a nightmare. Don't work with them and don't work with borderlines either. You know? And it's like, okay. So, I mean, I, I I was told not to do it. I'm trying to, you know, you're asking me that question and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I decided to take on what I was told not to do. I'm always up for a challenge and I, I wanted to pick like tough clients. I figured if I, if I'm going to try to make a difference in somebody's life, I might as well pick somebody that's something more than just mildly depressed. And they fascinated me. I mean, my my own history, I grew up in a house with, with two alcoholic parents, but I it wasn't because of that that I got drawn into it. I just, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's a good, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. I don't know. I just,
1: I mean, it's not a, it's not a casual choice. I mean, you, like you said, you've picked the hardest. Um, that leads me to my next question. You've been doing this for a while now. Any stories um, you might be able to share that or, you know, have happy endings around your client, how they made out? Maybe just something that brought you pride um, for what you do every day?
0: There, there is a client type that would come and they are really like, they're literally dying. Uh, jaundice, FC, liver failure, alcohol, drinking, still drinking, coming into my office drunk, not making appointments because they're drunk. You know, their whole lives have just been stripped away from them. Their careers are gone. The spouse is gone. The child has been taken away from them. They're living purely by the grace of someone who's giving them money to pay for rent. And that's it. And they're still drinking themselves to death. I have clients like that. And when that person makes that move towards sobriety, in the case of with alcohol, you see them and they, they the thing that, you know what, let me, let me, let me change that a little bit. The thing that actually is the thing that is the most rewarding to me. And it's really the only reward I get. I mean, I get paid for what I do obviously, but when I, when I get asked by a client who I've been working with for a year or maybe, maybe a couple of years, two years, three years, I've been chasing them around. I've been going, finding them on the street, pulling them out of motel rooms you know, from the, you know, and they're getting high on crack and I, you know, cause I, that's the stuff I do. I, you're not supposed to do that as a therapist, but I do that. Um, and I get a request from that person who says, Hey, my, my one year chip celebration is, is two weeks from now at six o'clock in the morning, 50 miles from my house. You told me when I first came in here, to tell you when that was happening. And I said, great, give me the address. And I go and I get to sit there in the room. And typically there's the, the addict that I've been working with. And there's the family members with them in the meeting. And I get, and I, I stand, I sit there and I watch them get that chip. And it, Your chip is the first one. That's a real, it's an honest chip. It's a real chip, real, like honest metal chip. <clears throat> we have special chips for that too, by the way. Um, And they get it. And they're, they're so full of pride. Sometimes they can't even talk. They're crying. They're emotional about it. It's like, I made it a year. I didn't think I'd ever do this. And they turn to me and they hand me the chip and I get to hold it and I get to pray over it and I get to hand it to the person next to me and it goes around the room and I see it come back to them. And I just sit there and just awe of the fact that they were able to do that. And, and that's, you know, the person that I was describing before, that was a, there was a person like that. There've been a number of them and, and I get to see that person and they're healthy and they're vibrant and they're alive and they are, are, you know, maybe they have a, a job now. It's been a couple of years, whatever. That's the payoff for me.
1: When I think of addiction, I don't know what that means. Uh, maybe I don't have an addictive personality, but. Are you sure? I don't I know. You. Maybe you could help me with that. <laughs> I go through phases, but they often end up being short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you, I mean, I'm sure at some point in time, you've had to describe to someone who doesn't understand addiction, what addiction really is, feels like, etc. And I mean, if you take the example of alcohol, you know, people who seem to know call it a disease. They, they use different words for it than those who don't. I was just curious, how, how would you help someone understand what it's like to walk in shoes of those like your, like your clients?
0: Well, here's, here's a story that I tell family members who come in with an addict, and the family members are getting it all wrong and trying to redirect the addict to have a quote. Well, i I'm using my finger quotes here, that have a purpose. That's why they use, that's why they're drinking, you know, alcohol. So here's what it's like to be an addict. You, you wake up in the morning, and you're watching, you know, you listen to radio, and you're getting ready for work. Somebody says something on the radio, or you see something, or you just have a random thought in your head. And it's a flashback to something that upsets you, uh, something in your childhood or something somebody said to you at one point that was, you know, or you got attacked, whatever it is. And you have that thought and it makes you, it, you, you immediately get angry. And you don't want that memory in your head. So you, you, you just try to push it away. So you go through the rest of your day and now you're done with work or school or it's later in the day, whatever. And the thought, it's been with you all day, and now it's come back to you. And now now you, you want it to go away. So if you're an alcoholic, you want a drink. That'll make it go away. So you have this anger. You have this feeling. You have a drink, and you're like, okay, yep, this is making me feel better. And then you have another one. Then you have another one, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is, that, was, I don't, that wasn't a big deal. And then you have your fourth, your fifth, your sixth drink. And the thought comes back to you, and it's even maybe a little bit stronger than it was in the first place. But now you actually like having the thought, and you and now you feel like something about it because you're drinking, and it's you know now. I'm, but I'm enjoying having the bad thought. And when I tell that to family members who have an addict in their, uh, in their lives, the addict is sitting in one chair. And the spouse, or the parent, or the brother, sister, whatever is in the other chair, and the addict is sitting there in the chair, nodding their head, going, "Yep, that's it exactly." And the family member's looking at me, going, "That makes no sense." I'm like, you know what? It doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to the addict, and that's the difference between you and the addict.
1: What are you much better at in your role today than you were when you started?
0: You know, from a from a job perspective. Um, as as a career choice, I didn't know what in the world I was doing when I started, and I re, I'll never forget the first client I had. I sat there in my chair, in my with my newly printed diploma on the wall and my shingle up on the door, and I'm thinking I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. And this person came to me thinking they're going to get help, and I was actually sweating. I was I my, I had sweat on my on my face and. I was just praying that they wouldn't notice and I kept my arms down so that they couldn't see me sweating because I I was trying to figure out, and I suppose that's true with almost any, any kind of career that you have where you just, you're starting out and you're not really sure what you're doing. You know, experience gives you knowledge and knowledge gives you uh, wisdom. And I think you have to have a whole lot of experiences to get to the knowledge part. Um, and I had no experience other than this life experience, because I'm, I'm older as an older therapist when I started, uh, but extremely nervous and unsure of myself. Uh, and now the, the difference is I feel, I feel very comfortable with, with my capabilities.
1: It's not like doctors who supervise uh, you know, residents chopping someone's, you know, doing an, an I was going to say chopping someone's arm off. I don't know why I said that again, maybe I need <laughs> therapy, but it's not like you sit next to someone in dry run with a little bit of mentoring. It sounds like it might be nerve wracking because it was, if I understand correctly, just you and your client, right? First time.
0: Well, this is, see, therein lies the problem. This is, this specialty is one where you can't have another person in the room. So everything is self-reported. They, you know, in education programs, we try to do, uh, we try to teach. So they'll have you do taped sessions, recording audio recordings of sessions, and then you get it kind of analyzed by the professors teaching the class. And they might do counseling that's on a with a one-way mirror um, where you're observed and they'll videotape you. But it's very artificial the environment for that. And but I mean, it's necessary, but it's artificial. In reality. Once you finish your, like with a master's degree, once you finish your master's degree and you're doing your postgraduate clinical supervision for 4,000 hours, you're, you're self-reporting and everything is ex- experiential, but only with you in the room, not the supervisor. So it's very, very difficult to, to know if you're getting it right or wrong. And if you got it wrong, that moment's already over because now you're reporting it to the supervisor in your clinical supervision, but it's already been done. If I, was a, if I was a surgeon, I got, I got a surgeon right next to me who's looking right over my shoulder and can put his hands in the body if I make a mistake. Uh, we don't have that luxury.
1: This is an aside, but earlier you mentioned that you now have take issue with the therapists who are sort of the, we do it all, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is the only time I've ever spoken to therapists was for grief counseling after my father died. So first of all, Choosing one was was nerve-wracking because you're about to open yourself up and it's really hard online at the time Probably is how I did it. Uh, I didn't have any recommendations to, to find someone but eventually I did I don't remember how and I remember and I'm smiling because I probably had three sessions with him and he never asked me about my dad and I remember thinking Maybe this is like really sophisticated, you know He never really talks about the thing you need and that's how he fixes it Eventually, I told him I'm okay. In fact, I ended up signing up for a woodworking shop that healed me because it was something I used to do with my dad. But I just thought of that when you said, and he must have been one of those guys who's like, yep, everything you have, I'll fix it, come on in. But it wasn't very useful in my experience.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm sorry that you went through that for on behalf of my colleague out there. That
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> um,
0: Maybe he had a maybe he had a process and a method he used. I don't know for grief counseling, but um, yeah, I mean, typically uh, clients will have to go through two or three or four or five counselors before they find one that, that they click with. But wow. um, I I do have uh, I I do take uh, what's the word umbrage with maybe I don't know um, I, I I take exception to counselors who don't don't take the time to get specific training. In a, in a treatment uh, modality as well as a, t- as a type of client. Um, and, you know, if, I'm gonna, if I was to enter into, and I, I wasn't told that when I started my educational process, but if I were to talk to somebody who wanted to go into this field, that would be the thing I would tell them is, don't go in thinking you're gonna be a generalist because I don't know that that's effective. You're, you're not really trained, you're not, you didn't take the time, there's no training in psychology or counseling or generalists, you know, um, we go in for specific types of, of, uh, training. And, and so it's really important to do that. Uh, cause I think you're doing a disservice to your clients, but you're also kind of doing a disservice to yourself. Cause I think you're going to have a very unsatisfying career if you don't.
1: You Gosh mentioned, what? you mentioned it might take two, three, four, or five therapists, psychologists, before you found someone with whom you click. I want to pull that thread a little bit. Um, are you saying or 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 giving people permission to do that? The reason I ask, like in my case, I didn't know enough about the field to feel confident enough to know if this guy was a quack or really good. Am I right in in summarizing that for our listeners out there who maybe are contemplating getting help, that they shouldn't? like stick around forever. If they feel like it's not working, they should feel comfortable moving on until they find a fit.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely do that. I mean, I tell that to my clients. I'm like, listen, I may not be your cup of tea, but you know, if you want to come back, come back. Or I might say, look, I'm not sure that I can help you. Let me give you a couple of names. It it, it is that. And I, and I, and I want people to do that because you're, I mean, I've been in therapy too. You're going to know because ironically, when you leave a session and like two hours later, you're really pissed off about something that that you were just talking about. That's actually a good sign because now you're having an emotional response to it. Not angry at the therapist, but angry about what you were talking about. Um, Therapy is kind of like stirring up, you know, water that seems clear, but it's got a very thick muddy bottom to it. You're kind of stirring it up. And if there's no mud that's coming up in that water, you're not going to, you're not, you're not talking to the right person. Um, I mean, they've got to do something with it. They can't be, you know, like a television uh, psychologist who just, you know, gets them all riled up and then cuts to a commercial and goes to the next guest. Um, but, you know, they've got to make you feel and think that's, that's called processing, right? You process, that's you feeling your feelings um, and they've got to elicit that in, out of and in you.
1: When I told um, listeners from my prior episodes that I was bringing you on, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, when I think of you, I think of you first and foremost as a a personal trainer and you were also a fighter. Now, I didn't see you fight, but you used to talk about it and you were probably on the tail end of that. Um, So I have to touch on that, right? Because I I promised, you know, (laughs) I think I said you were a professional, but but right, you used to you used to fight, you used to to work out, fight and, and train, right? That was something you did early on. I, I kind of want to get a sense for that. And and any other non-therapy type jobs that kind of led you to where you are, because you're an extreme example of someone who took a right turn, a left turn, then a super right hook turn, and now you're here, right? And you probably yourself didn't expect necessarily to to land where you are. So maybe just give us a uh, a summary of, of that journey, if you could.
0: Yeah, boy. Oh boy, man. I was, um, yeah, man. I, I, you know, I started out as a, as a lifeguard, uh, right out of high school. I mean, I was, that was my job was lifeguard swimming instructor. And that's what I did. And I did everything. I was like construction worker, worked in grocery stores. I was, a uh, worked at gas stations, you know, it was the late seventies, early eighties. I just do whatever I could. But, um, I was pretty adaptable at, at picking stuff up so or adept at picking stuff up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was like, that was, and I wanted to be, I wanted to work in recreation. Uh, I wanted to run gyms and I went to school for that and got out and the economy fell apart. So I did that for some years and I was a school teacher uh, for a year, taught school, oh, social studies. That. Uh, that was interesting. Um, and then uh, because I was a lifeguard and I did stuff like that for a while, I, you know, that's that kind of became my thing. But I, I've been training in in martial arts and boxing since I was like what 15. It seems kind of counterintuitive that somebody who wants to punch you in the face and render you unconscious wants to make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> but uh, you know, sports is a big deal for me. I've always I've always enjoyed sports and and participating in competitive sports. Um, I didn't. I didn't train to fight, uh, you know, and I wasn't like, you know, professional fighter, but yeah, I've been in the ring and fought and had my nose broken like six times and, uh, you know, had had to fix it now so that I can breathe, but um, getting down, you know, getting to what you want to do as, as a person trying to find it out, I didn't have a lot of direction as a kid. I didn't have a lot of guidance. Um, I didn't live at home after the age of 16 or so uh, I didn't live at home. So I just had to figure it out on my own. Um, and so it was some, a mix of survival and jobs for survival and move towards a career. But for the longest time, I didn't think in terms of a career. It was just trying to figure out what's the next best job I can get. And then it wasn't until I started getting, um, you know, the, the tie shirt and tie jobs and then the suit and tie jobs that that changed um so i think that it, if i you know think about it um finding finding help and getting that guidance um as a as a younger person would have been very helpful uh but i didn't get it i was just kind of on my own
1: did your experiences with personal training provide you any skills that you leverage today in your practice
0: yeah cuz i think the, the 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 term attunement where you're 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 really focused on the person and trying to understand what motivates them or what drives them or what prevents them from doing something is, is I think a skill set I've always had. Um, it used to drive my mom crazy cause I'd, I'd be drilling her with questions cause she seemed like she was confused or something. It, it helped and, and it helped me understand how to focus on the person and I'm, I've always wanted to help. That's I've, everything I've done uh, other than, you know, fighting people was <laughs> helping people in their lives, whether it was I was a beach lifeguard or I was, um, you know, I was an EMT, so I could I could uh, do the, the AED thing with the CPR and all that, or a school teacher. I was one, I always was drawn towards something that was helping people, but trying to find a way to make a living at that is, is um, a challenge when you don't have any of that guidance uh, or direction.
1: Two final questions. Earlier, you answered part of it when you talked about people who might be thinking about a move in your direction and you mentioned specialization would be a recommendation. What else does someone need to really know uh, about doing what you do uh, before maybe making that leap?
0: A couple things. Cause I, I was thinking about this um, when you first reached out to me to talk to you about what I do as a career. It's was like, how do I, how do I explain how to do that? There's a couple things that are very helpful. Being fearless. Um, you have to not be afraid to take a chance and to to put yourself on on a limb and, and you um, So the fearlessness will allow you to be a little bit more courageous about how you approach things You cannot enter into this field with a thin skin If you are emotionally kind of easily damaged You're in the wrong you're in the wrong field um, Because you're going to get it. You're going to get attacked. You're going to get blamed you're going to get accused. Um, you know, you become the target because you're sitting there in the room with a person who's angry, and and none of this is about you. It's about the client. But if you have a thin skin, you're not going to you're not going to do well. And the other thing is that it, it takes an extraordinary amount of work to get to the point where you can actually sit in the chair and be working with the client, fully licensed. Of the people that I went to my master's program with, there were out of I think there were like probably 40, 35 or 40 or became licensed therapist. It's, it's very, very difficult to get licensure with the time and the money. I mean, it's after you get out of school, you can spend 20 to $30,000 just on supervision. Um, It's a long journey. So if you're in, you're you really got to be in.
1: Great answer. I don't want to do it. No interest (laughs) at any stage. So the next question is playing off of that a little bit. It's broader. So you mentioned lifeguarding, you mentioned being a you know gas attendant, you mentioned really a lot of different jobs, and and you spent more time talking about the latter half of your professional life. When you reflect on all of it, if you were to provide career advice uh, for the world to hear, what would that be?
0: I think everybody could could benefit from having a a, a mentor a person who is an older wiser smarter person than you that you were willing to sit down and talk to and that you'll listen to as a young person um, it's easy to dismiss them when we're 18 19 20 uh, 21 22 years old we're all full of ourselves we we have a big we have a big heart but we don't have a head and um, it's you need a head so having somebody who is a mentor that you trust and you can identify and develop that relationship with them um, can help you in your, in your career Uh, choice. Um, Somebody who knows you well enough to say, like you just said, I don't want to be a therapist. Well, that's because you're old like me. Right. So you can, you can say that, but when you're 22, you might think, Oh, that sounds great. And it's like, well, you know, uh, is that something you really want to do? So finding, finding somebody who can be, an, an elder, if you will, in your life is, is, I think, I think probably the most important thing you could do as a parent, a friend, a coach, somebody.
1: Thanks for saying that. I, we haven't caught up for in a long time, but, but both my wife and I mentor kids now kids who would never have a chance at higher education in the program. We, we, you know, mentor in is part of giving them just that. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's, it's, it's rewarding for us but, but you see these kids having that confidant, that person who's not a teacher and not a parent and can kind of keep them on the straight and narrow because boy, Mm -hmm. they, they sure wobble a lot. They can go all over the place. Like you said, no sort of clarity. Yeah. And, uh, and that's an important role. Well, Jacques, thank you. I, I enjoyed this, uh, you know, caught up with you, heard about what you're doing. You seem to be, um, you seem to be, you know, just doing really well and, and uh, although you might be a little bit drained helping a lot of people who, who need it. So, <laughs> hey, I just want to say thanks for your time.
0: Yeah, it's good hearing your voice again.
1: If you listen to the opening of our first episode about 12 episodes ago, I mentioned one reason for doing the podcast was to get us out of our, our bubbles. And I think this episode, with Jacques, really highlights how others live what they struggle with, and how there are people in the world like Jacques who have made it their profession to help. So thank you, Jacques, for your your candor and for giving us a glimpse into uh, what you do every day to make a difference in your clients' lives. Speaking of making a difference, let me ask you a question. How am I doing? Is this podcast useful to you? Is there something I could do better? One of the challenges, I guess, doing this is I don't get a chance to talk to all of you. I would love to be able to do that. Get us all on a Zoom call and have you tell me uh, what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see different. I'm committed to, you know, continuing uh, to, to improve the, the podcast, the guests, the questions, uh, but I don't really have visibility into uh, what everyone's thinking. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can reach me at Rob's Job Speakers at gmail.com. You can go to jobspeakers.com and see that contact information there. You can get onto our Facebook page or find us on Twitter, but I really would love to hear from you. I really do hope um, I'm making an impact uh, because you know, trying to build listeners for me is just a means to an end, and that is uh, to help you or someone you know maybe tweak a decision when it comes to managing their careers, because it's really all about our lives, Uh, since the jobs we do take up so much time. Moving on, let me play a clip from next week. Our guest, Tamara West, is someone who started her career in banking, but now does housing development for a county here in Florida.
0: I had gotten really comfortable, and sometimes you got to get out of that comfort zone and take the next leap, and I'm really grateful that I'm running a whole department now,
1: So tune in next time to hear Tamara talk about her role and her team's role, helping people with their housing needs. Again, another critical population who need a helping hand. And Tamara will tell you all about that. And again, her own career path. With all of that said, uh, it's been a pleasure spending this time with you. I know it's taken a little bit longer, but I hope you found it enjoyable and worthwhile. Be safe, be good, be well. Until next time, uh, goodbye.